Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. Praise the Lord. God is good. Amen. Amen. Whoa. Uh, if you have your Bible, please get ready to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Just about every year when Christmas season rolls around, a similar conversation ensues in the Choi household, as I am sure similarly in other homes with young children. The unavoidable, the very controversial question of Christmas, is Santa Claus real? Now, in case there are any children listening, I know different families have different thoughts about how to deal with this Christmas dilemma, so no spoilers here. Don't worry. But in the Choi family, we established earlier on what is truth and what is fiction. Sorry, Choi kids, Santa is not welcome in our home. The kids ask, of course, why not? And I answer, because duh, we don't have a chimney. I'll save you the theological reasons we tell our children why Satan, I mean Santa, (laughs) is not welcome in our home for another conversation. But the conversation almost always leads to or from reasons why my daughter Katie and Micaiah's friends, my son Katie's friends, believe that Santa Claus is absolutely, positively real. In fact, it's not only Santa Claus my kids' friends believe. Some of them, I'm told, also believes in tooth fairies and elves. One of Katie's friends is very convinced that Christmas elves are real and claims verifiable evidence. The cabinet door was opened and there was no one else in the kitchen except elf on the shelf. This is the conversation I'm having with my daughter as we're going to school. So what does it mean to believe in something? More germane to our passage today, what does it mean to believe in God of the Bible? What does it mean to believe that Jesus is God? What evidence proves Jesus is who he says he was? Of all the overwhelming reasons why we believe Jesus isn't like Santa or elves or tooth fairies, but real and trustworthy, worthy of worship, deserving of all of our loyalty and devotion, revolves around the fact of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith, and my faith, our faith, is vain. Resurrection was the game changer, the irrefutable proof, the undeniable credence, why Christianity isn't up for debate. One may choose to reject it or accept it, but the overwhelming evidence proves its truth. After all, we're not talking about some small sectarian cult that we can easily ignore. We're talking about the world's largest religion, Christianity. We're talking about centuries upon centuries of followers throughout the generations all over the world that shaped history and societies. So consider, how did this happen? How did Christianity gain such momentum, especially if the public career of Jesus, its founder and leader, was so short-lived, a three-year public ministry? If Jesus just simply died a cruel death by crucifixion, if Jesus was merely a man, a good teacher, or a prominent prophet, and his closest disciples all scattered, fearing for their lives, what happened that turned it all around and caused hundreds of thousands throughout the centuries all around the world to even give their lives to death to proclaim and spread its truths? The answer is contained in our passage this afternoon in Jesus' 
resurrection. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and we're nearing the end of part three, Sufferings and Glory, as we examine the final four chapters of John's eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Last Sunday, we examined the passage on Jesus' burial, and we saw how even in death, even in Jesus' death, God was working to fulfill his redemption plan. Even in seeming defeat, brothers and sisters, God is sovereign and in control. Amen? Even in tragedy, in Christ, there is triumph. In Christ, God turns graves into gardens. In the place of death, in Christ, there is new life. Amen? Well, our passage this afternoon details the events following Jesus' burial, and what occurs in our passage is what seals the deal of all that has been written about Jesus, the Messiah. His resurrection proved everything written about him in the scriptures, and everything Jesus taught and said would come to pass about himself happened. And it had eternal consequences for you and me, didn't it? Everything changed the moment Jesus rose again from the grave. So from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, I want to share with you two points, the evidences and the implications of Jesus' resurrection. Evidences and implications. That's the simple outline. What evidences of the resurrection and what are its implications for us today? So point number one, evidences from verses 1 through 10. And point number two, implications from verses 11 through 18. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will reignite your heart to devote your all to Christ who died and rose again for you and give you new life. May this word empower you, strengthen you, and give you much hope this season. If you're a visitor here today and you are not a Christian or have doubts about your faith, first of all, we're so glad that you are here Thank you so much for coming today to worship with us. We've been praying for you, and we pray through this message you will be convinced that Jesus is the risen King who is alive and reigning today. And if he is, how might that affect your life today? If you came here struggling in the circumstances of your life, if you came here today weighed down by sin, if you came here today discouraged and disappointed and hopeless, We want you to know Jesus is a good and faithful God who has carried our sorrows and sins, who sacrificed his own life for our sins. The Bible says all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray that you will call on him today and be saved. So without further ado, let's turn to God's word found on page 906 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, please, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration of the message so that you see and hear God's words for you. John chapter 20, verses one through 18 says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture 
that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What are the evidences of the resurrection? Point number one, evidences from verses 1 through 10. And from verses 1 through 10, I want to highlight four evidences that verifies Jesus' resurrection. So, sorry, a little trick there. Four subpoints for each point, so it's more like an eight-point sermon. <clears throat> four subpoints: the empty tomb, the remaining grave clothes, multiple witnesses, and fulfillment of Scripture. You'll see throughout the passage that it is indeed the author's intent for us to know that the resurrection was verifiably observable. Just notice how many times the word see or look is recorded in this passage. In verse 1, Mary saw that the stone had been taken away. In verse 5, the other disciple, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes. In verse 6, Simon Peter saw the linen clothes. In verse 8, the other disciples went in and he saw and believed. There's more in the rest of the passage, and I want to encourage you to pay close attention to how the author, John, emphasizes the observable evidences. John wants us to know that these are eyewitness accounts of what occurred in human history. This is not fiction. This is not made up. John wants us to see the facts and believe, which is the purpose of the gospel of John. That's what it says in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. I want you to see these things, know who he is, and believe. Well, the first evidence we see here is the empty tomb. Look at verses 1 through 2 again. It says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Through the accounts of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Mary Magdalene, along with five other women, were present, six women total, on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. So I'll attach an article in our weekly newsletter. But Joanna, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Siloam, mother of James and John. The author of this gospel focuses only on Mary Magdalene as the main point of reference, and I'll explain later why John might be doing this. But we know that she is not the only woman present because if you look at the end of verse 2, Mary says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is an important piece of information as we consider evidences of Jesus' resurrection. The fact that the gospel described women first discovering the empty tomb is proof of its historicity and validity. 
in that time, in that Roman and Jewish culture and society where women were very much dismissed and oppressed, if the gospel accounts of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection were just a legend, a made-up myth, they would not have recorded women to be the first witnesses responsible for telling the men that would be discrediting unless this is exactly how it happened. At any rate, we are told that these women come to the tomb on the first day of the week, early while it was still dark. The other gospel accounts uh, tells us that the women brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. And you might be asking, in the verses before, John chapter 19, 39, we saw Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds of spices to anoint Jesus for burial. So why did these women bring more spices? That's a legitimate question. Well, we can understand initially uh, that these women could not have guessed at first that God would provide Joseph and Nicodemus, who are secret disciples, who are also rich and influential men in fulfillment of the prophecy that we talked about from Isaiah 53, 9, to care for Jesus' deceased body and have it buried. That was to everyone's surprise. No one expected that. And as I shared last Sunday, that the normal Roman practice was for the bodies of anyone who would be put to death by crucifixion to be left to rot on the cross to become food for vultures as a picture of their cursed fate. Nevertheless, what occurs is a fulfillment of another prophecy that I mentioned last Sunday, Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So understand the picture, what's going on. The sheer amount of spices used by Nicodemus was more than enough to keep Jesus' body from decay. It was equal to the amount of spices used in burials fit for kings. Well, as we are told in the previous passage, because of the Jewish day of preparation of Passover was at hand, everything had to be rushed. The Jews were not allowed to touch dead bodies during the Sabbath, and so the women had to wait until after Passover, which is Saturday. And so they may not have known that Nicodemus had already anointed Jesus' body, or they most likely, they wanted to make sure that Jesus' body was properly taken care of, being Jesus' close friends. So that's why they come early while it's still dark to check on Jesus' body. That's what's going on here. Well, as the women were approaching the tomb, I'm sure they were wondering, how in the world are we going to move the heavy stone that covered the tomb's entrance? Perhaps that's the reason why six women came together, thinking about how to move the stone. Well, to their huge shock and surprise, the women discover that the tomb was opened. And before she enters the tomb, it says in verse 2, Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And of course, this is the first evidence of Jesus' resurrection. The body of Jesus' dead body was missing and has not been found ever since. Where did it go? Think about it. Where did the body go? Who took the body? Matthew's account tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees, being concerned that Jesus' prophecy would be fulfilled after three days, I will rise again, requested of Pilate to secure the tomb by posting guards. So we know that there were guards there, present, in front of the tomb. So again, the question, what happened to the body? What happened to Jesus' dead body? Well, think about it this way. You come to your house after a long day of work, and discover that the door is wide open. You speculate something happened. And in this instance, Mary Magdalene's response is to run to Simon Peter 
And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who is most likely the author of this gospel, John, and in Mary's mind, she had concluded what was obvious to her. A tomb with Jesus' body was supposed to be sealed, but the tomb is opened. Someone must have stolen the body. You'll notice she repeats this concern three times in this passage. In verse 2, in verse 13, and in verse 15, she says, They have taken away my Lord. Well, another question that might arise is why did Mary run to Peter and John? We know that these two disciples were the only disciples remaining nearby, right? Peter at the high priest courts when he denied Jesus three times, and John was present at Jesus' crucifixion. They were the closest disciples of Jesus. And so they also, shocked and surprised at Mary's news, jump out of their seats and run to the tomb in order to find out what happened which leads us in the discussion of the next evidence, evidence two, the remaining grave clothes from verses three to seven. Look at those verses. It says this. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, in verse 3 and 4, we are told the details of Peter and John's foot race, which is an interesting thing to read about, kind of random. They're going to see what happened to Jesus, and they're racing each other or something. Now, some preachers will talk about how John was being a little boastful, adding this little detail. John, he's saying, I'm faster than Peter. Some Bible scholars will remind us that Peter was the elder, the older of the two disciples, so he was physically slower, which doesn't make sense because I'm a little bit older than some of you guys and still faster. Anyways, um, some theologians will interpret that Peter, feeling guilty from denying Jesus three times, was feeling regretful and slow on his feet. And perhaps the reason why John waited for Peter to go into the tomb first is out of just respect and deference for the older disciple. But again, none of these speculations can be verified. So it's one of those questions you'll remember in the back of your head. And when you go to heaven, you can ask them yourself. In my opinion, I think these details are recorded because that's what actually happened. John is recounting with precision what he recalls on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. He wants us to know that this is exactly what happened. Nevertheless, don't miss the emphasis of these verses The words linen clothes is mentioned three times. First, it says it in verse 5, then in verse 6, then in verse 7. The first thought you have when you come into your house and you discover the door is wide open is, again, something must have happened. And so you go into the house, and what you see next will determine the conclusion of your speculations. Either you see that everything is disheveled and everything is everywhere, And you determine that there has been, in fact, a robbery. Or everything is fine and nothing is missing. And so you conclude, you just forgot to close the door when you left in the morning. And the wind must have blew the door open. Well, what Peter and John discovers is something most curious and interesting. The word that is used in verse 6, Then Simon Peter saw the linen clothes lying there. The word saw in its original Greek, thereo, which means he examined carefully. So Peter examines carefully what happened. The linen clothes that had been wrapped on Jesus' body was there. 
the face cloth, which would have been on Jesus' head, were there. But it wasn't just left everywhere. It was neatly folded up. They had feared someone had stolen the body. But if someone had stolen the body, why would they, first of all, unwrap the grave clothes? Second, why would they have folded it up neatly and carefully? Most robbers don't exactly pay attention to leaving the scene of the crime neatly, do they? Just think about it. If you're stealing something, you're naturally in a hurry. You want to remain conspicuous. You want to cover the body. You want to hide the thing that you are stealing, not expose it. So think about robbers, if they had stolen this body, unraveling Jesus, why would they do that? It doesn't make sense. Not to mention the sheer amount of spices covering Jesus' body would have hardened the linen clothes and would have been extremely time-consuming to unwrap it. And that's why Peter knows they are not just random clothes lying there in the empty tomb, but the clothes that was covering Jesus' body because it was probably covered in blood and spices. So then, what explains the grave clothes left behind? Which moves us to our next evidence. The multiple witnesses. The multiple witnesses. Like good investigators, consider these details with me. If Jesus' body was truly stolen, who? Who would have taken it? Mary Magdalene seems to think the Jewish leaders took it. That's why she repeats three times, they have taken the Lord. Who is she referring to when she says they have taken the body? It can't be the disciples. None of them are around. They were so scared. They all ran off. It wasn't Peter and John. They are trying to find out for themselves. Even if it was some sort of conspiracy that the disciples remained hidden, tucked away to do this secret conspiracy act by hiding away Jesus' body, stealing Jesus' body in order to manipulate and deceive everyone about Jesus' resurrection. Later on, when almost all of them would be martyred, for continuing to claim that Jesus was alive, if it was, in fact, just a conspiracy, if, in fact, it was just all a lie and Jesus was really dead, why would these cowardly disciples who ran off for the fear of their lives stand by the truth of Jesus' resurrection even at the cost of their own lives? All they needed to do was recant, and they would have been saved. But they don't. They die for this claim that Jesus is alive. What happened? It wasn't the woman, right? They were shocked and surprised. If it was the Jewish leaders who had stolen the body, let's say it's true that the Jewish leaders stole the body. When the disciples later on would go preaching Jesus' resurrection, why wouldn't the Jewish leaders have produced the body and exposed the disciples' lies? They could have brought out the body. Here's the dead body. You're lying. It's not true that Jesus is alive. Here's a dead body right here. Why don't they do that? Because they didn't have the body. They didn't steal the body. The dead body was missing and no one had stolen it. Listen, the point of these verses is this. There were multiple witnesses to Jesus' missing body. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't made up. The dead body of Jesus placed in the tomb carefully, sealed the stone with guards placed there. The tomb was empty. The grave linens remained folded The women didn't steal it. The disciples didn't steal it. The Jewish leaders didn't steal it. Which leads us to the fourth evidence of Jesus' resurrection in this section. Fulfillment of Scripture. Fulfillment of Scripture. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says this. 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Following Peter's careful examination in the tomb, Peter remaining perplexed, John then follows Peter into the tomb, and it says John saw. John saw with his own eyes and believed. The word saw there in the Greek is a different word, orao, to see with understanding. It clicked in him, in his mind, that this was exactly what Jesus had been saying all along. In John 2, 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He was speaking about the temple of his body. In John 10, 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. It's not just to die, but to rise again, you see. That's what Jesus said. In John 16, 16, a little while you will see me no longer, and again in a little while you will see me again. You see, John, the beloved disciple, recalled the words of his Lord and believed. And that's what verse 9 means. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, up to this point, they didn't get it. And the risen Jesus would help them to understand. Brothers and sisters, the promise and prophecy of the Messiah's resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures for generations. It was God's plan of redemption from the beginning. Write these verses down. Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610. Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Daniel 12, 2 and 3, Hosea 6. All these passages and more in the Old Testament tell of how God's Messiah would be raised back from death to everlasting life. As I said, Jesus himself from the beginning of his ministry had foretold that he would die and rise again and that is the purpose of why he came to earth. The point is, the resurrection wasn't a random and unexpected event It was a promised, prophesied, and predicted as God's plan for the redemption of sinful man. Amen? We'll talk more about the most obvious evidence of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' multiple appearances in his resurrected state to give his followers and disciples understanding in the next point and in the next sermon. But consider these evidences carefully, brothers and sisters, of Jesus' resurrection. The empty tomb, the remaining grave clothes, the multiplicity of witnesses, the fulfillment of scriptures. Add them all together. And how could anyone refute? Many have tried. Many have tried throughout the generations, but none have succeeded. If the resurrection of Jesus was just some myth of man-made tale, Christianity would have been destroyed even before it started. But within days of Jesus's actual crucifixion, which by the way, nobody doubts or questions. Nobody says Jesus didn't actually die. The fact of the matter is Jesus did die on the cross. Nobody argues that. But just within a few days of his crucifixion, Christianity took off and has grown to what it is today. How do you answer it? What is your answer? What is your reasoning for it? Jesus is risen. Jesus is the true eternal king. This book is true. And that has tremendous implications for us today. How does Jesus' resurrection affect us? Which moves us to the next point. What are the implications of Jesus' resurrection from verses 11 through 18? Again, four brief subpoints. I'm on good timing, I think. And so the four subpoints here, Jesus' resurrection grants us certainty of faith. Jesus' resurrection grants us certainty of faith. Jesus' resurrection grants us hope 
in Christ's sovereign reign. Sub point three, Jesus' resurrection grants us unity with God and to other believers. Sub point number four, Jesus' resurrection grants us a testimony to proclaim. Certainty of faith, hope in Christ's reign, unity with God and other believers, and a testimony to proclaim. It's interesting. John focuses these verses, 11 through 18, on Mary Magdalene. No other gospels record this account, and it's very important actually why he does. Otherwise, there's so much misunderstanding and strange heresies that formed from these verses. For whatever reason, Mary Magdalene is often misunderstood as the adulterous woman caught in the act in John 8. But nowhere does scripture ever make this connection. Mary Magdalene first shows up in Luke 8 as the woman who had been demon-possessed, but healed by Jesus, who had experienced the great mercy from Jesus. Hence, she owed much to him and loved him dearly as a loyal follower and disciple. Also, it was not Mary Magdalene who had anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. That was Mary of Bethany, sister of Martha and Lazarus. So, the inappropriate and outlandish speculations that Jesus had any kind of romantic relationship with Mary in fictitious works like Jesus' family tomb, the Da Vinci Code, Jesus Christ, superstar, are baseless at least and blasphemous at worst. To chase such ridiculous fantasizing would be to deny Jesus' divinity altogether and we're no longer talking about Christianity at all. I agree with J.C. Ryle here. What John is doing in recounting Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Jesus is explaining that those who love Christ most diligently and perseveringly are those who receive most privileges from Christ's hand. Those who love Christ most diligently and perseveringly are those who get to experience the greatest blessings from Christ's hand. As John himself was the beloved disciple, he is drawing important lessons for us to learn from Mary and from our risen Lord. It shows in verse 11, Mary, who loved Jesus dearly as her master and Lord, was concerned deeply about what happened to Jesus' body, and she was weeping. And the word in the original Greek here is not just tearing up, it's ugly crying. She was messed up. What's going on with Jesus' body? Where is he? So even you see that the angels appear in radiant white, asking her why she is weeping, but she doesn't even know who is talking to her. They have taken away my Lord. So absorbed in her concern, she mistakes the next person who speaks to her for a gardener. And he asks, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it says it right there, doesn't it? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. The fact that Jesus was resurrected was the last thing she would have imagined. After all, it's not a usual occurrence that dead people come back to life. But what we learned through this encounter are certain implications of what Jesus' resurrection meant for Mary and the sisters present and the disciples to whom Jesus would soon appear to and to us even now. So look at verse 16 again. Mary is emotional. She is distraught. Mary is worried and afraid. But Jesus, with one word, brings comfort and insight and peace to Mary. Jesus says to her, Mary. That's it. One word. Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus didn't need to say many words. Jesus just called her name and she knew who he was. You see, Jesus had said in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. You see her immediate response, don't you? She turned and said to him, Rabbani, teacher. See, it's no coincidence that John, the beloved disciple, saw and believed, and Mary, the beloved follower, heard and knew who Jesus was. The resurrection grants certainty of faith. Fear is turned to comfort. Doubt is turned to faith. That Jesus first appeared to Mary and the woman at the tomb in his risen state again proves that this was no insider movement made up by the disciples, that it wasn't just a mere conspiracy or that it wasn't just fiction, but that in fact it was history. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is the very grounds of why hundreds of millions of Christ followers have testified and committed our lives to him. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ's resurrection, the reason for millions of Christians who claim that we have been transformed, that we have been delivered from death to life, from sin to forgiveness and reconciliation, Christ's resurrection is the reason. Second implications of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection grants us hope in Christ's sovereign reign. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In the realization that the man speaking to her was, in fact, Jesus, Mary calls out to him, Rabbani, or teacher. But she must have also flung her arms toward him to hug him in pure excitement and joy. And the response Jesus gives her is a helpful implication of our relationship with the risen Christ. Jesus was teaching Mary and us to hope in Christ's sovereign reign. The purpose of Jesus' earthly mission was finished. Jesus had told his disciples of his ascension in John 7, For a little while I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. In John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. In John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving this world again and going to the Father. I love that Jesus is teaching Mary proper theology here. He is teaching her and us the way we ought to relate to him in his risen state as king. Not merely as rabbi, not merely as teacher, but as the eternal king. Do you get that? Don't mistake Jesus' correction to Mary as unloving. Jesus is in no way saying to the degree, get off me, Mary. He's not doing that at all. He's not saying that at all. He says, don't cling to me now. Don't hold on to me now because I'm leaving. Don't cling to me. Hold on to me. Don't let go of me when I ascend to the Father in heaven. He's teaching us about how he will reign as sovereign king when he sits on the throne of heaven, when he ascends. As it says in Acts 5, 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus was teaching us how when he ascends, he will send the Holy Spirit who will be our very present help, our comforter and our counselor, as it says in Acts 2, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. We're going to talk more about his ascension in a few weeks, but understand this important implication. Jesus' resurrection defines our relationship with him, that he is our sovereign king. We are his subjects. We are his servants. Furthermore, Jesus' resurrection grants us unity with God and to other believers. Look at the last phrase of verse 17. 
It says this. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This is the first and only time Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers. Did you guys catch that? Bo did. (laughs) And he says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus is explaining the work he has accomplished on the cross and the new relationship that now defines God the Father and his believers. Because of Christ, his Father is our Father. Because what he has done on the cross, because what he has finished on the cross, his God is our God. This is what the Apostle Paul means in Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 15, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility through the cross. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand it's only by Christ's finished work on the cross and by his resurrection we have peace with God through repentance and faith in Christ. If Christ is not your Lord, if he is not your Savior, the wrath of God remains on you. God is not your Father. God is not your God if Christ is not your Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus meant in John 3, 35 through 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But for us, again, for those who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, he is our God. He is our Father. A wonderful implication of what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Finally, Jesus' resurrection grants us a testimony to proclaim. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The fact that Jesus was dead and now alive was not something to keep quiet about. It was something to tell everyone about. And let me tell you, since that glorious Sunday morning, Followers of Jesus have not kept silent about the news of Jesus' resurrection. Amen? Every Sunday since that day Jesus rose up from the grave, every Sunday following has been Resurrection Sunday. That's why here at NCBC we don't celebrate Jesus' resurrection only on Easter Sunday, which is a word not even found in the Bible. We proclaim Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed every single Sunday. Hallelujah. This is still the most amazing, wonderful news for sinful, fallen, broken people like you and me in this broken world. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is, in fact, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's news that will never get old or boring, that the God of the universe and creator of all things created us to know his amazing love. Although we rebelled against him, although we daily reject him, and we were separated from him, helpless to save ourselves from our sins and his judgment of us in eternal hell. We thought we were hopeless. We thought we were dead forever, condemned forever. But God had a plan from the very beginning to set apart a people for himself, to know him, to love him, and to follow him. And his plan from the very beginning was to send his only son, who would be the sinless sacrificial substitute, that by his life, by his death, by his resurrection and ascension, he would propitiate, pay in full for all of our sins, sins of the past, sins of the present, and sins of the future, that whoever would believe in him and call on him by repentance and faith will be saved and have new life here on earth and eternal life when he returns. 
So if you are here and you are not a Christian, what more evidence do you need? Jesus is risen. We are his witnesses. Every single one of us in this room and millions of Christians around the world who profess faith in Jesus testify of the validity of Christ's resurrection or otherwise we're a bunch of fools. Because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we stand. Because he lives, we hope. Because he lives, we will rise again with him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, the Lord has brought you here for a purpose this afternoon. I want to ask you the question, what is your certainty in this life of suffering and sorrows? Death is literally our only end without Christ. Hell and judgment is your inevitable fate. But Christ can change all of that. He has changed that for us who profess Christ. Christ can give you peace with God, peace with fellow man, peace with yourself. He has made a way for you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you and trust him today. Don't hesitate any longer. Trust him today with your life and forevermore. If you'd love to talk to us more about how you can follow Jesus, talk to any of the pastors at the door at the close of service. Dear beloved NCBC family, what does Jesus' resurrection mean for you? Think about that for a second. What does Jesus' resurrection mean for you? In whatever circumstances of life, whatever comes your way, in suffering, in sorrows, do you have certainty of faith? Do you have assurance of faith? Faith is not something we conjure up on our own. The chairs that you are sitting in hold you up, not because you will it so, but because it is a faithful chair. Christ faithfully accomplished all for you. Faith in Christ gives us assurance that he will persevere you to the end. So trust in him. Go all in on him. Brothers and sisters, when life's troubles come your way, do you have hope in Christ's sovereign reign? Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. He holds you. He holds me. He holds us. He says right there in our passage, we can cling to him today because he reigns as king. Brothers and sisters, when conflict and strife and insecurities and expectations overwhelms us and isolates us, do you know in Christ we have oneness with God and to other believers? Christ grants us forgiveness and reconciliation that we through Christ also can forgive others and be forgiven. And we can walk in unity because Christ crushed and destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Finally, brothers and sisters, can I exhort us from our passage? You have a testimony to proclaim if you are a Christian. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Let's tell others. Let's pray for one person we can intentionally, regularly pray and share the good news of Jesus with. Let's be burdened by the gospel. Let's encourage one another and remind one another toward faithfulness and zeal in this task to proclaim his good news. Let's not be okay. Let's not be okay never sharing the gospel. Let's not be okay never inviting anyone to church. Let's not be okay never not reading scripture with a non-believer. Let's not be okay with these things. Do you believe in Jesus? What do you mean that you do? 
Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. Let's remember the evidences and the implications. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed. Father, living in this broken world and divided world, oftentimes we forget this fact. Even as those who proclaim that you are alive and real and true, Father, many of us are stuck in our sins. Many of us struggle to really truly believe what it means to be your disciple, be your follower. But Father, you remind us today of the evidences of an empty tomb, of the remaining grave clothes, of the multiplicity of cloud of witnesses around us. And Father, you remind us that your word will last and endure forever. Help us who have been transformed by it, live like it, speak like it, obey like it. Help us to live to tell others about this glorious good news that Jesus is alive, that he has risen. It is in Christ's name we pray.